You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmong Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guests today are Deborah Hart Strober and Gerald S. Strober. They are the co-authors of 10 books up to this point, including oral histories of the Kennedy, Nixon, and Reagan presidencies. They are gracious enough to appear on today's podcast on very short notice to discuss their book, Queen Elizabeth II, an oral history. It was first published in 2002, but was updated and released in May 2022. The book's detailed interviews and insightful accounts range from the very early years of her reign to Prince Philip's death in 2021. Deborah and Gerald, thank you very both, both very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yes, great to be with you. Well, the book has received rave reviews, uh, a highly detailed royal portrait for devotees of the crown, which I found was interesting. Uh, a terrific book. It makes for an immediacy you don't get in the usual biography. There are things I've never read before. That was from Tina Jordan from NBC. Uh, first, you spent a good chunk of your lives obviously studying the queen and writing these books, both the original version and the update. Uh, what's your what are your general impressions of the world's reaction to the passing of Queen Elizabeth II? I was very touched by the fact that although there are Republican influences out there, people are genuinely mourning the Queen's death. Um, the, she was a beloved figure and people of all ages are coming out uh, to follow the procession of, of her hearse as, as it made its way 
down to Buckingham Palace. I, I, I found it very emotionally heartwarming. Yes, I think it, in a way it was to be expected that it was a momentum building up. 70 years on the throne, probably the most recognized leader in terms of longevity in the world. So I think it was expected that there would be this outpouring, and I think we'll continue to see this over the days. And we're noting this in the uh, kind of uh, wide coverage this is being granted on the U.S. cable networks. One of the things we were discussing before we hit record for the podcast was the fact that you, in, in videos and in pictures, you are seeing the entire royal family, especially her four children, come together. We haven't seen many of those uh, photos or videos lately, partly perhaps because of Prince Andrew's troubles. But how do you all feel about seeing, quote unquote, everybody gathered together? I think it was a wonderful thing to do. This is not a time for divisiveness. Uh, this is a time for family. And, you know, just project, sure, they're royals, but in your own family, if there had been divisiveness and then there was a death, wouldn't you want everybody to come together? I think it was just a marvelous gesture. Uh, yes, I, I think it will last through the uh, funeral and perhaps somewhat beyond that. But the question is, what happens then? Uh, Meghan and Harry will be returning to California. Uh, the other uh, senior royals will be uh, carrying out their responsibilities under the new monarch. So we'll have to see how this unity uh, develops and continues, if it can, over time. Let's talk a little bit about the future of the monarchy before we go back in time and talk about the queen. Uh, one of the things that I have been thinking about is, you know, when the queen came to the throne in it's 1952, you know, she was she served in the war, but it was a different time in terms of the media, much more guarded. And in a way, Charles III, at least for England, is sort of like the first tabloid monarch where his foibles and problems and issues have been dissected publicly. How do you think this will affect the future of the monarchy? I think in terms of Charles, you know, his mother became very, very fond of Camilla. And Charles seems to have gotten beyond um, the Diana episodes. And I, I think that he will hold the monarchy together for his reign. He will then pass it on to his son, William. And William's children are out there, too. It might be a more truncated monarchy, I think, you know, because uh, nations will leave the Commonwealth. There's already a move toward that. But I think the monarchy will continue. The British need that monarchy. Yes, that's true. I think Charles is kind of like the man in the middle, uh, facing the impo almost impossible task of following the 70-year reign of his mother. And at the same time, having uh, William kind of breathing down his neck because William is quite a bit more popular 
than Charles. So his task will be how to steer that middle ground. And let's remember that as a prince, he was given to rather controversial views on subjects like architecture and agriculture and religion. And he was known for writing notes to members of parliament and others in the government, sometimes not always a congenial notes. Mm -hmm. Will he be able to do this now as the constitutional monarch? But I think he got a very good head start the other day, walking amongst the people and shaking hands. He even accepted a kiss from the lady. Uh, you know, he let it be known that he is of the people. I think of his mother as being just as Diana was the people's princess. I believe the queen was the people's monarch. And I think Charles is trying to become the people's monarch as well. Yes, it goes, it goes to your question, Robert, in the sense that in former days, one of the great things the monarchy had going for it was the mystery that mm -hmm. you couldn't really approach couldn't really hand it or know it all. What was it about? These people were in their palaces, uh, hidden behind the public. And then during Elizabeth's reign, it became apparent that they had to be more vocal, more open. The queen in her walkabouts, a palace website, emails, messages in addition to the traditional Christmas message. So now it's more of a user-friendly monarchy. But the issue for Charles III will be, can he continue and retain some of the mystery, or is it all going to become like one of the European monarchies? Is there ways can you compare Charles III to King Edward VII, who... Uh, had to wait, if that's the right way to phrase it, for his mother, Queen Victoria. She reigned for basically 64 years, and he was only king for about nine years. So in other words, another transitory figure, while a younger man, in this case, George V, uh, is waiting to come to the throne. Do you see any connections there and just in the sense of generational comparisons? There is a, a superficial connection, but I think that Queen Elizabeth was much more of, a, a, say, helpful to her son. Victoria was Victorian, distant from her children. There was a, a big distance in the way children were brought up in those days, seen but not heard, that kind of thing. And I think that there are differences here. Well, Char Charles will be 74 in November. Uh, if you go by actuarial tables, he may live another 10, 20 years. Let's remember that his maternal grandmother lived to 101 and his parents lived to great ages. So the question is, is he going to carve out a new role for the monarchy or is it going to be a holding action as he awaits William's inevitable uh, succession? You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guests are Deborah Hart Strober and Gerald S. Strober. 
Their book, Queen Elizabeth II, An Oral History, an updated version, was released in May of this year. We are discussing the future of the monarchy. But let's talk a little bit, you know, kind of when I reached out to you after the Queen's death, you know, I had all these questions I wanted to ask about about the Queen herself. So obviously, it's almost an unlimited number. We'll try to keep it to a decent uh, time period. But the question that I had was interesting was, was her personality. So much of what's been written after her death involves her sense of humor and her good nature. In your book, in writing your book, in, in talking to all of her uh, of associates and other people for the oral history, is that something that really stuck out, her sense of humor? Or what other aspects of her personality did you find yeah, enticing? Sense of humor, definitely. Her compassion. She really, uh, there was one incident where somebody was having an audience with the queen uh, reporting about some horrific uh, thing that she had witnessed somewhere and she suddenly choked up and the queen called for her beloved dogs to be brought in and let her, the lady who was having the audience play with her dogs. It calmed the lady. She knew that the lady needed to be calmed and it's an interesting insight into the queen of her affection for her own dogs that maybe in her moments of anguish, her dogs have played a similar role. That that struck out, that stuck out to us. She was also quite an adept mimic. Uh, the Reverend Ian Paisley, the fiery Northern Ireland uh, leader told us uh, rather uh, with some great glee and appreciation well, the queen does a great mimic of me. That's a form of flattery, isn't it? So <laughs> she was her, really making fun of him. Yes, in, in her private moments, uh, she was uh, not just the stiff person that we kind of saw sometimes in public. Uh, we all have our private moments. She certainly had her share of them. Has any British monarchs Reign, seen more changes in the world, in the Commonwealth than Queen Elizabeth's? None. It's amazing when you think about it. I mean, Britain had an an empire which you know the sun never set on the British Empire, and that went from empire to Commonwealth. Uh, she saw a world war that that changed the face of, of the world, really. Um, and uh, it, it was quite a life, quite a life. And, and I think also, following up what Deborah was saying, that in, during her reign, you saw the kind of diminishing of the United Kingdom. I remember at one time, the great world power, the great navy where the sun never set, and over time, Britain stopped being, let's say, a first world country uh, due to internal problems, due to changes, uh, due to the end of the empire. So she witnessed all of this and was very much a historical part of that. Winston Churchill once described Elizabeth when she was just two years old as, quote, a character 
She has an air of authority and reflectiveness astonishing in an infant. Her strong will and her strong sense of character and her her true religious devotion has been are aspects of her personality that have been remarked on considerably in the last week or so. What do you think of Mr. Churchill's quote? And do you think he was accurate? You know, absolutely. Uh, Somebody was showing videos of the queen when she was two years old, pushing a little doll carriage and she rammed it up against a wall. And instead of stopping, she went back a little and then rammed it up against the wall about three or four more times. Persistence, you know, she and the queen looked at herself doing that and said, my goodness, you know, I was stubborn, wasn't I? (laughs) Yes. And she also, interestingly enough, had a great sense of detail. Uh, We were told before a state dinner, she would come down to the dining room and make sure that every plate and every glass and every utensil, all the cutlery, everything was aligned in right place before the event was able to begin. A perfectionist. Yes. Much like Queen Victoria, Elizabeth wasn't expected at birth to ascend to the throne. Queen Victoria only became queen in 1837 after the death of William IV. He had no heirs. And much like that, Elizabeth became queen upon the death of her father, George VI, who only became king after the abdication of his brother, Edward VIII. Do you find that it's Interesting that these two these two women who who shaped their age both kind of came to the throne, perhaps you could say by accident, but that didn't mean weren't trained to be the monarch. How did Elizabeth as a child or teenager react to the fact that she was going to be the monarch after the passing of her father? You know, it's fascinating you say that if you look at the profiles of Queen Elizabeth and the young Victoria, they have a very similar physical profile, which is interesting to me. But I think that the Queen um, benefited from the fact that she, until she was 10 years old, she wasn't destined to be Queen. She lived a more normal life, more family life, which helped her become maybe more human and humane. Victoria was still a product of her own age, a distant mother. And what was important in Elizabeth's life was the closeness of the family. Her father, King George VI, used to talk about we four, meaning himself, his wife, the queen, and the two daughters, Elizabeth and Princess Margaret Rose. So he was able to tutor his daughter, to give her a sense of duty and responsibility and how to act in difficult situations and how to relate to the parliament and to the people. So she had a great advantage of having this closeness of family and a loving relationship with her parents. And in contrast, I believe, to Queen Victoria, who would refer to her and her husband, Albert, as we too. Yes, 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 exactly. 
and and her Victoria's children suffered from the distances. Certainly, Edward uh, did, and he had a very very brief reign. Um, he was almost a tragic figure, if you will. And you know, it, it's also interesting if in Charles in that first uh, televised uh, speech he gave, talking about how he was going to fulfill the sense of duty that his mother had displayed and exhibited over her long life, the pledge that she had made in South Africa at age 21 to serve the people, um, that this is something that was, I think she picked up from her father, the reluctant king who didn't expect it, didn't want it, but served with great dignity and remember that during World War II, how the king and his queen rallied the British people in extremely difficult circumstances. So I think she picked up from her parents and especially from her father, this sense of responsibility and duty and uh, keeping a stiff upper lip, as the Brits would say. How would you describe her education? I mean, the British monarchs' education tended to be somewhat inconsistent, but yet it looks, it appears, based on what I've read, that that her parents, Queen Elizabeth and George the Sixth, went out of their way to make sure that she was prepared for the role she was eventually going to inherit. Absolutely, they they did, and. Over the years, you know, she met every uh, important leader, Americans, Europeans. She gathered so much knowledge that she ended up teaching her prime ministers. You know, they come in for their audiences and although uh, their weekly audiences and although they're not allowed to say what went on, several of them told us that they learned so much when they'd come in for their weekly audiences because the queen had accumulated all this knowledge just from existing and being and observing. Yes, you know, it's like someone uh, once said, well, this person is self-educated. And the response was, the key word there is educated. And she had a kind of on-the-job training over all of these years from the very beginnings of her coming to the throne in 1952 uh, through years of learning. Almost every day was a learning experience. And I think Prince Philip, who was, by the way, the love of her life, and I think he gets a bad rap in certain circles, but he educated her. He came from a, a different milieu. And and I think he contributed to her, say, worldliness, perhaps. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about World War II. Elizabeth, Princess Elizabeth, uh, famously served as a uh, mechanic and a driver during the war. Uh, she also gave a radio address in 1940 when Britain stood alone and was suffering from intense bombing by the Germans. Um, I always thought it was interesting that uh, there were people who tried to get uh, the the children, Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret, to to go to Canada, and that uh, Queen Elizabeth's response was, 
quote, the children won't go without me. I won't leave without the king and the king will never leave. Which sounds exactly like something she would say. So how did Princess Elizabeth's service during the war sort of put a new stamp on the monarchy in the sense that she did go through so much of what the quote unquote commoners went through? Yes, well, she wasn't living her life in those years behind palace walls, protected, as you say. The children were not evacuated to Canada. They just went to Windsor. They went to Windsor. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that experience gave her more of a sense of knowing the quote-unquote common people, understanding who would one day be her subjects. This was, again, a tremendous learning experience for her which she would not have had the opportunity to share and had she been shunted off to another country, another society. And let's remember how important it was for the king, the queen, and the two princesses to be at the center of British life in those perilous days, to endure some of the problems. Remember, it was famously said that King George would have a bath once a week in about one inch of water. So (laughs) while they still had their life of great privilege, they also were identifying in some way with what everyday people were living with. And I just, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but after the war, when Princess Elizabeth was going to be married and needed a beautiful wedding dress for the occasion, She wasn't just given a couture coming in and designing it. She had rations because Britain was on austerity, post-war austerity. She had a ration book. She had to get her fabric from her rations, her clothing rations. And I think, again, you mentioned the war, uh, World War II, uh, the pivotal role that the monarchy played, not only in rallying the British people, but in setting an example for the Western allies in those really dark days, and how respected the king was. There is this account of, in 1944, one month before D-Day, the allies had their final dress rehearsal and presentation of the battle plan. It was held in a school in London with all of the senior general and flag officers of both the British and U.S. armies present. And everyone was in the room, gathered in the room, Churchill at the front, and the doors opened and the king walked in. And suddenly the entire audience stood as one person. As heir to the throne for her father, George VI, why wasn't Princess Elizabeth made Princess of Wales. That is an interesting question. Uh, really, uh, you know, I, I we never covered that actually in our our uh, investigations. But it's interesting. Uh, you mentioned Wales that when Charles in his speech the other day mentioned that he was making 
William, Prince of Wales, there were some nationalists in Wales who said, what right does he have to appoint the Prince of Wales? <laughs> did did he mention Longshanks and say Edward the First is the reason why I have the <laughs> power to do so? In the sense that leads me to another question, that is, is sort of the the rigor and the relations, and you know, to some perhaps the stultification of life because of the protocols of royal existence. How did Princess and then Queen Elizabeth perhaps broaden that to a certain degree. I'm sorry, can you uh, repeat the question, Robert? Sure. So much of what you read about um, royal families, whether it's England or or Russia's or you know the other dynasties and monarchs of the early 20th century and before one of the things that comes through is how everything is so regimented and you know we can't do that and that's not part of the protocol did queen elizabeth or princess elizabeth do anything in your opinion to sort of push those boundaries away and make it a little less stuffy yes i think it was the due to the demands of the modern world uh the media the uh, tremendous uh, British, uh, especially tabloid print world, and then the advent of television, the advent of the internet, the monarchy had to change, it had to adjust. Fortunately, there was a sovereign who was able to adjust. It took time, it wasn't simple, it wasn't easy, because again, they had to maintain, if possible, some of the mystery. But he had Prince Philip who came in and he had been a naval officer. He wanted a clean house, modernize, get rid of this thing and that thing. And he really deserves a lot of credit for getting rid of a lot of the, uh, you know, extraneous um, things that were going in in the uh, and uh, he was uh, very, very, very helpful to her in that respect. That's actually Right into my next series of questions. As odd as it may seem now, her marriage contemporaneously to Philip of Mountbatten, as he was known, was not without controversy. How did they meet as children? Uh, please, kind of, if you can, describe the courtship and and what were the controversies that attended their marriage. Well, they met when the queen was uh, thirteen years old. For her, it was love at first sight. Um, He was very dashing. He looked like a Greek god. He he was a a Greek prince. Um, And um, she uh, wanted to marry him from that moment. And when she told her parents that she had picked her her husband, they said, well, you're very young. No. You ought to think about it. And they were not overjoyed at first, but she persisted. And so she got her way. And yes, there were controversies. Uh, After about seven years, Philip made this uh, famous or infamous trip uh, with his chief aide, uh, Mike Parker, and uh, they were away for quite some time. And the question was, what was Philip doing when he was freed from the 
the shackles or the bounds of uh, being in London with the Queen and the protocol and all of that entailed. Um, but when we interviewed Mike Parker at his home in Melbourne for the book, uh, he, you know, kind of downplayed uh, the possibility that there were hijinks or any kind of hanky-panky on the trip. It was simply Philip had to get away, had to find his own way. Remember, he had given up a very promising career in Navy uh, to marry Elizabeth. Uh, some had said uh, uh, Admiral Henry Leach, who we interviewed, uh, said to us that Philip would have gone right to the top in the Navy. He'd been a combat veteran of World War II. Uh, he was a very adept sailor. He gave all that up. Now, you might say, well, he gave it up for a life of privilege uh, known by very few people. But nonetheless, he did give up his own career and had to be the man stepping slightly behind the queen. But there was great affection between the two of them. We, we had press credentials for various occasions when we saw them together. And on one trip, they were coming into Mozambique and um, they... The queen, uh, they came down the red carpet, he several paces behind the queen, and she was getting all of the accolades. And he, his head, he was darting about looking this way and that way. And he was observing, and I can imagine the pillow talk that night was, well, you know, I noticed this, I noticed that. He was tremendously helpful to the queen in that respect. And he really did love her and respect her and yes. she to him as well he was her eyes and ears yes. and he was a very important part of of her reign they were a team in the sense i mean she had to be of course the front person but he was very capable in terms of sizing situations up and he had a particular knack of drawing people out let's say the garden party where people were very reluctant to come up to the queen. What do you say? How do you act? And he would sometimes ask a person a provocative question just to draw the person out, to make the person feel somewhat at ease in the presence of royalty. I have a, a story that I treasure from that trip to Mozambique. We were at the airport with the press corps to meet them. And uh, and the um, Philip and uh, the Queen got into a royal limousine, and uh, we were being escorted by Geoffrey Crawford, who was a wonderful man, a palace official. And the, the limousine was a bit far away, and Geoffrey said, "All right, Deborah and Gerald, you can cross the road now." And uh, so we started crossing the road, and suddenly. The, the limousine, the royal limousine was upon us and a screeching of their brakes. And uh, we looked up and we saw the Queen and Prince Philip. They were illuminated in the car. So they stopped. We crossed the road. A few minutes, uh, maybe an hour later, there being, uh, we're standing on the porch of the president um, of Mozambique's home. And uh, the Queen and Prince Philip are going inside to exchange gifts and pleasantries. And they come up onto this little platform 
And the queen smiles at us, a brilliant smile, and walks ahead. Prince Philip looks at us. He grabs my press credential, looks at it for a minute, looks at me, and gives me a look as if to say, so you're the people we almost killed. (laughs) (laughs) He was a mischief. He really was. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guests today discussing the life of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, our Deborah Hart Strober and Gerald S. Strober. Their book, Queen Elizabeth II, An Oral History, was first published in 2002 and was updated just a few months ago and republished in May 2022 to, of course, terrific reviews. Tell us a little bit, please, about writing the book. I mean, whenever you want to approach someone and ask them to talk about somebody prominent, You know, the reactions and the willingness to talk freely can vary from person to person. What was it like to talk to these folks about the queen? And did you enjoy your subject? Because one thing that I've learned from doing interviews is when people write biographies, they tend to get tired of their subject uh, way before they finish their book. Oh, not us. (laughs) Well, we were very fortunate. Uh, um, The palace was approached. We went to see, I believe her name was Penny Russell Smith in the palace, the press person in the palace and told her what we were doing. And we wanted to let them know that, you know, we were going to do it. And she said the queen would be informed She wouldn't tell people necessarily to talk to us, but she wouldn't tell people not to talk to us. So in other words, the the palace was not going to refuse access like if, you know, somebody called and said, should I talk to these people? So we were very, very lucky. And and the palace helped us with uh, uh, securing some interviews. For, uh, For example, a fascinating interview we had with the late Sir Michael Oswald, who was the head of the Queen's stables. And uh, we met him on the Sandringham estate and he took us to see the horses and also took us to the little hideaway cottage that Philip and Elizabeth used to go to, Wood Cottage, on the Sandringham uh, estate. So we were fascinated by the subject. Uh, We like to tackle large subjects. This was a great experience for us. We did have a bit of an issue at the beginning in convincing some people to speak on the record about a subject which, you know, was largely taboo in a sense, uh, the Queen. But we were successful in getting many of the people, over 100 people that we were able to interview. And to some degree, we were kind of a curiosity, uh, as Deborah said earlier in the to program. Americans right. Two Americans running around and being Two Americans in the Queen's <laughs> Uh We also had one other uh, kind of funny situation uh, for our various trips uh, to conduct interviews in England. We stayed in a place 
at an address at 10 Downing. 10, 10 Downs. Down I'm sorry, 10 Downs. Just off Piccadilly. And so when we would ask people if they would like to come to our apartment for the inn, and they say, Where are you? And we would say 10 Down Street. And some of them got, What? Down, you're a Downing Street? <laughs> no, we're a 10 Down Street. But, you know, uh, we, we did have a few negative uh, things and my tactic with people, and I, we had used it in other books too, was, well, you know, you maybe you want to talk to us because you don't know what some people are saying about you. Don't you want to give us your view of this? And then they say, yes, we'll talk to you. And, and I don't know if this has been your experience, Robert, in interviewing, but our experience has been for a number of our books is if someone says no initially and you really want that person, keep trying, keep trying. Succeed at first, try, we had, try. Right. Try. We had that experience with Sir Edward Ford, who had been assistant private secretary to both King George VI and to Elizabeth, and who played a crucial role in that moments after it was discovered that King George VI had passed away. And he was very reluctant to speak with us. And then we kept writing to him and writing. Maybe we wore him down. And one day we got a letter saying, okay, come and see me. And it was a great interview. Yes. So you have to keep trying with people. You just have. And we also, by the time we did the monarchy book, we had the benefit of having done our presidential uh, oral histories in America, three of them, and the Dalai Lama, and so on. So, you know, we had uh, a bit of a track record there. So it, it we weren't completely unknown. George VI, the father of Princess Elizabeth, died in February 1952, while Princess Elizabeth was in Kenya. Is it true that her decision to retain the name Elizabeth as monarch, she can choose any name she wants, uh, created drama and resentment in certain parts of Great Britain? We did not hear that. Uh, that was her given name. Uh, and, and so she was entitled. She had several names, Elizabeth, Alexandra, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which royals do have, you know, their name for various members of the family. We have not heard that. It, it may be that some people uh, may have resented the idea, well, how could she possibly follow Elizabeth I? Sure. But if that was a reservation that people had, I think that she wiped that reservation out over the course of 70 years. And her mother also was named Elizabeth. Yes. You know, this is something I'd like to bring up because when people were talking about the Queen's, the late Queen's affection for Balmoral, uh, how much she loved it there, she and it was, of course, in Scotland, they never, ever mentioned that she has Scottish blood. Her mother, Elizabeth Bowes Lyon, was born in Scotland the daughter of a Scottish baron. So, and nobody has picked up on that, that the queen is part Scottish by birth. Yes. It's often noted in the stories about Queen Elizabeth, especially that she has passed, that she was head of the British Commonwealth. 
What is the British Commonwealth and how is it related to former imperial countries gaining their independence, many of which did under Elizabeth's reign? Well, the British Commonwealth is an association of now 55, 56 nations, uh, formerly in the past associated in some way with Great Britain, although there are exceptions. Mozambique is now a member of the Commonwealth, uh, and Mozambique had been a Portuguese uh, possession in the past. But it's an association of nations with an affinity to the United Kingdom, and it has some very significant economic uh, repercussions, favorable uh, repercussions for the members of the Commonwealth. Now, we also have to remember that within the Commonwealth, there are now 15 nations which are realms where sovereign, the British sovereign is the head of state. The largest of those 15 nations would be New Zealand, Canada, and Australia. And in each of those nations, there are strong Republican movements. There was a referendum a number of years ago in Australia as to whether to become an independent state. It failed, but as the author Thomas Keneally told us, it likely will pass eventually when the queen dies. We're staying with this because of our respect for the queen. Right. What will happen under Charles, all bets are off. A few minutes ago, when we first started talking, you mentioned, I mentioned Winston Churchill, and we kind of talked about prime ministers for a little bit. Uh, she had 15, if you count Harold Wilson twice. Just like here in the States, we count Grover Cleveland twice as president. What were her relationships or interactions like with them? I mean, the British monarch has got a whole lot of a, a whole lot of it's the seat of all authority, yet they don't have a lot of power. And so there's an, a sense that the monarch has to be above politics. Was she, was Queen Elizabeth above politics? And specifically, uh, can you talk about her relationship with Margaret Thatcher when she became prime minister, the first female prime minister in Britain's history? Well, um, first of all, the queen reigns. She doesn't rule. Um, Margaret Thatcher, there was some tension there. She didn't always agree, although... From all indications um, we uh, that we've had from our interviewees, she was the queen tended to be conservative in her outlook. But with Thatcher, Thatcher upset her very much on certain issues. I think having to do with South Africa. Yes, so uh, the queen the queen opposed uh, Thatcher's views on apartheid on the apartheid regime of South Africa. I think also the chemistry between the two of them was, was not Rivalry, good at all. shall we say. Uh, the, the Queen had an excellent relationship, for example, with, with John Major, who uh, soon after he left uh, the role of prime minister was made a member of the Order of the Garter, the, the, the highest uh, rank of chivalry that it is for the Queen to bestow on, on a subject. So she had varying relationships. She was 
fond of Harold Wilson. Um, Tony Blair, maybe that's another story, especially surrounding the drama of, of Diana. uh, Diana's death. And, well, it, it's interesting thinking about prime ministers, uh, and, and maybe that's why it's still hard for me to process the fact that she's gone. Just um, two days before her death, uh, Liz Truss, the new prime minister, that came up to Balmoral to be anointed prime minister because the queen could not do it in a normal circumstance. And there was the queen anointing her prime minister. And she looked a bit fragile, but mm -hmm. two days later, the bulletin, the queen is dead. And we couldn't quite process that because we had seen her, the, the clip of her anointing prime minister trust two days earlier. Queen Elizabeth, easily the most traveled monarch in British history, dozens of countries, hundreds of trips. I think she went to Australia like maybe 14 times, 15 times during her reign. How important was it to the queen to be out and about within the common world? And not only that, but she's visited communist countries, uh, visited Russia, first monarch to do so. Uh, how important was traveling and actually going to see people to the queen? Well, certainly with the Commonwealth, Robert, it was very important to show the flag, to go out there and to uh, visit with the, uh, not only the leaders of these uh, nations that were part of the Commonwealth, but to go out and meet the people and press the flesh, as Lyndon Johnson used to say, and see them eye to eye. It was also important to travel to other nations uh, because many of these relationships had economic and trade significance. So Britain, as an island nation, was trying to get its goods into onto the shelves and into the places of commerce around the world. And the Queen was a great ambassador for all of that. But think of how tiring many of these trips would be. Uh, and yet she was very loyal and faithful to her schedule and to the programs that her ministers and her government had prepared for her. It couldn't have been easy in many cases. But again, this goes back to her sense of duty. These were things that she had to do. She couldn't shirk these responsibilities. Of course, earlier on when she had the Britannia and there was the Queen's fleet of aircraft, it was much easier to get around and to make these trips. Later on, there was no ship. Now the, queen, the uh, people in the monarchy are asked to take the regular train within Britain. Only if they're going on overnight trips do they take the royal train. So there have been some economies and streamlinings, but in general, she was tireless in her efforts to communicate to the world. And the only way to do that was not from Buckingham Palace, really, but to be out there and meet the people. Much did change during her reign as queen. And that is one of the things that I want to mention, the scrutiny of the royal finances 
it really seemed to intensify in the 1990s when I guess you could say perhaps the monarchy reached its nadir when it comes to public perception and public support. How did Queen Elizabeth weather that time period, that scrutiny, especially during uh, 1992, which she famously described as Annus Horribilis? Well, I think she had the perspective of the long view that both as she looked back with her prodigious knowledge of British history and her predecessors and history in general, there's an ebb and a flow. Sometimes things are good, great. Sometimes they're not so good. Sometimes they're really bad. And from her perspective, she was on the throne. It was a lifetime job for her. There would never be an abdication such as had taken place with Edward VIII. So you look at it from a, a different perspective. Uh, today is bad. Maybe tomorrow or next month will be better. She survived the great crisis of the stir caused by the death of Diana and the failure of the Queen and Philip to return immediately to London out of respect for Diana. And here we are. I was just saying the other day, Robert, if you think about it, remember the great outpouring of grief for Diana and all of the floral wreaths that were placed in London, uh, Buckingham Palace, Hyde Park, and so on. And now, 25, 26... 27 years. 27, I'm sorry, years later, uh, what do we have? The same thing. The same thing happening. This tremendous outpouring of grief, these tremendous displays of florals. Uh, many of the same people who were in their 20s, perhaps, or younger when Diana passed away, now are of a certain age and are showing their respect for the queen. So in a sense, at the end of the day, she triumphed over all of this. Because I think people realize her greatness, her sense of duty, and her genuine humanity and caring for her subjects. My personal first notice of Queen Elizabeth II was during the United States bicentennial year of 1976. The Queen and her husband came over to help the ungrateful colonists celebrate <laughs> their victory. Did you talk to anyone who specifically mentioned that trip of the queen and what was her take on how, how she was received here? I don't remember that we spoke to anyone specifically about that trip, but we did speak to people who were involved in other trips. Uh, Mike Deaver, who was, uh, yeah, a major assistant to President Reagan. And when she went to the West Coast and uh, they went to a restaurant, they went to Trader Vic's in San Francisco, uh, which was a, a great experience for both the Queen and Philip. Uh, she was very fond of the United States, of the American people. And the racing. She loved the uh, the, the derby. The, the, the Kentucky Derby. Right. On at least one occasion, she made a private trip to the Kentucky Derby. So, and again, there was this great affinity, what 
uh, Churchill used to call about the English-speaking peoples. And she came over here, I believe it was in 1991, is that right? And gave a speech before both houses of Congress, certainly shortly after the Gulf War. She seemed to feel like, based on a lot of what I've read, especially in the last few days, that she felt at home here. I remember reading a specific article uh, written by someone connected to the, I must say the Reagan administration, but but certainly part of the Reagan quote unquote revolution, who said that the Queen and Ronald Reagan had a specifically strong relationship. Yes. What would you what would you comment about that? They certainly did. You know, I think part of it was their love of horse flesh, aside up from they shared certain conservative views about life, but they enjoyed riding together. That was so relaxing to the Queen. And uh, they they just had a very easy, warm, warm relationship. And, and I think in terms of her long life, uh, part of the affinity for the United States was based on the experience of the war and the friendship that uh, her father, the king, had with General Eisenhower, the leader of the Allied Expeditionary Force. And that friendship continued when uh, Eisenhower became president and in the years after his presidency. So I think there was a, a very warm relationship developed early on in, in her life and then in her reign as well. And, you know, I, although we did fight a little war to rid ourselves of the monarchy, a lot of Americans are monarchists. They get up at four o'clock in the morning to watch a royal event. And I think maybe the Queen sensed that there are a lot of monarchists among our American citizens. We love our way of life, but we're monarchists. I remember getting up at who knows what time to watch the wedding between Prince Charles and Princess Diana. And, and it was the most viewed I think is it still the most viewed television event worldwide in history? Probably. And I will make a prediction now. The Queen's um, funeral next Monday, it's at 11 a.m. British time. Many, many Americans will be waking up in the middle of the night to watch that solemn royal funeral. Absolutely. We are talking with Deborah Hart Strober and Gerald S. Strober. They are the authors of Queen Elizabeth II, An Oral History. We have a few more minutes left. Uh, one of the strangest things, and I remember it contemporaneously, that involved the Queen through no fault of her own, and maybe you detailed this in your book or talked to people who we're supposed to prevent it from happening is that along with a couple of assassination attempts, uh, one in London and one in New Zealand, even though I think the gun in London was actually full of blanks. There was also the, <laughs> the amazing situation where a man named Michael Fagan just appeared in queen Elizabeth, the bedroom. Yes, yes. How the hell did that happen? Well, Security well, is involved. It, it's a fascinating question. You would think with 
all of the security surrounding the queen and the protection and the uh, surrounding the palace and so on, that this that wouldn't happen. But as they say, stuff happens. Uh, the unexpected happens. And uh, I think she kind of shook it off, almost was uh, a bit amused by it. She, I don't know how amused she was, but she kept her cool. Yeah, she does. Yeah, she just, they kind of chatted, like they just had a conversation until someone finally showed up. Well, that was so typical of the queen. Yeah. She probably was sensing he's a human being. I'm going to find out what makes him tick. I'm just guessing at it. Yeah, we remembered. We were horrified to hear about that. How did Queen Elizabeth II keep her temper when it came to the famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, British tabloid press, who certainly uh, took significant interest in both her, her own children and their spouses? I think she understood this was part of British life. She understood that there was no way of stopping the tabloids from reporting on the the foibles of the royal family, their problems. Uh, but again, I, I think the queen took the long view of things. She was going to reign until the second that she passed on. She was probably going to have a long life based on the longevity of her mother. Uh, so, Yes, the tabloids were an irritation. There may have been times when maybe they kept kept the uh, newspapers from her in especially trying uh, situations. But she was the queen. I, I think you, in thinking about her, she very much knew who she was. And that while she did not have actual power, she had symbolic power. And she was adored by millions and millions of people throughout the world. So the tabloids could have their day, and the next day you could wrap your fish and chips in them. I'm currently reading a book. It's absolutely terrific, and I'm actually going to reach out to the author to see if he will come on the podcast. And the book is called The Crown in Crisis. It's by Alexander Larman, and it's about the abdication of Edward VIII. I remember watching on YouTube, there's something that was happening involving Queen Mary. This was like several years after she passed. They were dedicating something to to her memory. And the Duke of Windsor, the former Edward VIII, was there. And so was Queen Elizabeth. And it was just kind of interesting from a from a historical perspective to, to see the two of them together, if mostly because you don't ever see two reigning monarchs from the same country, usually sitting in the same spot. What was her relationship, if any, with the Duke and Duchess of Windsor? Well, prior to the abdication, she adored her uncle, really, you know, her very glamorous uncle. She, of course, had very negative feelings about the Duchess, as did her mother, Elizabeth, later the Queen Mother, who blamed the Duchess for her husband's early death. And uh, it was very, very tense. And 
but she acted in public professionally. Yes, it, it was a formal, after as Deb said, this warm relationship of her youth. When uh, she became the sovereign, it was a more formal relationship. And uh, the Duke and Duchess had their home in Paris and traveled the world most of the time at the expense of other people. Uh, and they were a given, but they were not considered very important anymore. They were had passed off the stage of history. The queen was reigning, and uh, the duke and duchess were in a in a much reduced role. Almost pathetic in a way. Yes. And he was a traitor early on. You know, he and the duchess met with Hitler, and there was a plot afoot to, uh, if if Britain were conquered, that they would arrest. King George and replace Edward on the throne. So, you know, he was not a nice person. <laughs> yes, the, 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 the terrible picture, I think that's the best way of saying it, of, of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor shaking hands with Hitler in 1937 is probably one that they'll, that they could never have lived down. Um, we were talking a few minutes ago about the tabloid press and in many ways, the first sort of royal concentration when it came to the press was Elizabeth's sister, Princess Margaret. They had a complicated relationship, for sure. Uh, but how do you describe their relationship in your book? Well, I think they, they were very close. They were very close. And unfortunately, Margaret created or precipitated a crisis for the queen and the government to have to deal with. And um, they got through this also, although there were recriminations on all sides, but Princess Margaret realized that while she was in love, uh, presumably with Captain Townsend, to marry him, she would have to give up her status as a princess. And she was weighing one against the other and ultimately decided she would not give up that role. Um, but I think their relationship was one. They were sisters. They, and, they loved one another. Yes. And Margaret Rose looked up to Elizabeth. Very much so. Yeah. Is it? Is the one word you would want, I mean, there are several words, right? But one word you would use to describe the British monarchy is resilient. Because one of the things that's coming through in this interview is how the monarchy or the monarch uh, encounters difficulties and problems, but yet they're able to overcome them. What makes the British monarchy so resilient? Tradition, longevity, it is the oldest um, monarchy in Europe that we know of. It's, it's weathered, uh, the removal of a king. Charles I was executed, and then you had Cromwell, but then you had the Restoration. And since that moment, there has just been, it's here to stay. There's never going to be another execute royal execution or, or another Cromwell. It's there to stay no and, matter what. 
Yes, and I think part of it is the determination of the monarch not to be the last one, not to preside over the dissolution of the establishment, uh, this, this historical uh, institution. So I think you're constantly on your guard to protect and to do everything you can to preserve the institution of the monarchy. And there, I think you also help by the people, a number of people have said to us over the years, okay, there's a Republican movement in Britain, they wanna get rid of the monarchy. What do we replace it with? Can you see Britain with a president? No, and Buckingham <laughs> Palace is a hotel. Look, I think of, in terms of Charles, okay, Charles the first executed, Charles the second restoration, Charles III moving on and modernizing the monarchy, the three Charleses in British history. How did Elizabeth cope with the death of Prince Philip in 2021? They were married for 73 years. And there's that, that poignant picture of her sitting by herself with her mask on. Yeah. Look, she was. He was the love of her life throughout, no matter their, their separation for a number of years or all the travail of, of a normal marriage. He was the love of her life. She missed him terribly. And uh, she went to her death still missing him. And uh, I don't think she ever got over it. When you love somebody that much, you can move on, but you never get over that. Yes, he, he was very much her rock, the, the one person that in the privacy uh, of their lives she could communicate with, she could commiserate with, she could learn from. Look, he was in many ways an insensitive person, a person of a different age, a different time. But he had a great feeling for young people. He created scholarships. Uh, he was a very, as most people are, a very complex person and living in a fishbowl, uh, not always liking it, but learning to cope with it. A last question. And I, I was going through my notes and I was typing out my questions and doing my preparation for the podcast. And I got all the way down. I thought, okay, I think I've covered everything. But I almost made a grievous error in which I would have forgotten to ask you about, of all the things that we associate with Queen Elizabeth II, perhaps at the top of the list, is her love of Pembroke Wells Corgis. How did she come to love those beautiful dogs so much? And were they her constant companions and helped keep her happy? So from childhood, there are pictures of her playing with dogs as a very little girl. Dogs and horses, but you obviously can't have your horses come into your living quarters. But she, the Corgis, made her happy. They comforted her. She sensed that they comforted her guests when they were in distress. She just, she traveled with them. She, when she drove around the grounds of the palace, she always had them in the car with her. She just adored those dogs. 
And for someone who has to be wary of many other people, of their motivations yeah. and their schemes, uh, it's, you know, to quote Harry Truman, yeah, who famously said, quote. if you find a friend in Washington, get a dog. <laughs> That's so, exactly they were right. Her friends, her true friends. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guests today have been Deborah Hart Strober and Gerald S. Strober. How long have you two been married? Uh, 41 years, right? 41 years and counting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they are the authors of Queen Elizabeth II, An Oral History. It was first published in 2002, and it was updated in May of 2022. The reviews are excellent, including... One reviewer who says, packed with opinion, facts, and personal accounts from those who were there, this unique oral history is a must-read for fans of The Crown. They've been very kind on short notice to come talk about not only the reign of Queen Elizabeth, but the woman herself. Deborah and Gerald, thank you so much for coming on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Thank you thank for you, having us. You're an excellent interviewer, by the way. Very <laughs> yes. stimulating hour. Yes. Thank you very much. That's very kind. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.